Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's the holiday week here on Industry Focus, and we are wrapping up the year with an all-host roundtable. I'm host Dylan Lewis, and I've got Shannon Jones, Nick Seipel, Jason Moser, and our new host, Emily Flippin, with me in the studio. What's going on, folks? Howdy. Hey. hey. All right. So this is going to be our third installment of the never-ending story. Uh, <laughs> so we get our roundtable, and we like doing this every year. Um, we, uh, if you if you haven't caught the earlier ones that we've taped, you know, go back, and the construct will make a little bit more sense, and you get some background on some of the changes coming to the show in 2020. With that ominous note, I'm, 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 I'm going to pass the mic over to Nick Seipel, who's got a fun little game for us uh, for this segment. Yeah, I thought it'd be fun uh, to do some kind of over-unders on kind of our expectations uh, for some important markets going into the future. Uh, the first one, I kind of had a question for you guys, and then we'll go into this this first over-under. So this, they being in 08, this device was the brainchild of its founder leader, one of the greatest business leaders of all time. It didn't invent the device. But the introduction of his version sparked a revolution that transformed first the United States and then the world into what it is today. It transformed a product that was once accessible only to the ultra-wealthy into something for the everyman. And as a result, it made the world more connected and created an ecosystem that allowed dozens of new businesses and business models to develop and thrive. What device am I talking about? When was this again? 08. The iPhone? No. (laughs) The iPod? No. All right. The whole idea was there. We were going to guess the iPhone. Uh, it's the Ford Model T. So in two, so in 1908, uh, the Model T debuted. Obviously, it opened up access uh, to the to the automobile for people across the world and went nationwide. The iPhone debuted in 2007. Did a very similar a very similar thing, opening up access uh, to apps and really connecting folks. Uh, the Ford Model T ran from October 1908 to May 1927, a 19 year uh, career for this for this device. It was the second longest running auto. Uh, vehicle in history. So the question my over-under right now is, over-under 19 years, will the iPhone last in production? I'm going to take the under. I'll take the over. Over. I'm going to go under. Over. So so that means past uh, past 2026, you think the iPhone will last. Why do you think the iPhone will last that long? I I almost, I I think that, so we obviously become very used to it. It's become almost mundane. It is just part, it's an extension of ourselves. We talk about the cyborgification of people, like we're becoming robots. That's kind of like the first step, really, because you're not doing anything without your phone. I think sometimes we discount how prolific the smartphone has been in the development, uh, you know, in, in the um, growth of the human race. I mean, I, I, it's a lightning in a bottle product. And I think that one of the biggest challenges companies have been facing since the smartphone came out is what's next, and there is no clear answer. And I, I, I do believe in the future of AR and, and MR and all that stuff, and I think that headsets will be a part of that. I, I just have a hard time seeing something just fully disrupting the smartphone from our lives. You might have just convinced me that I was wrong. <laughs> so. Well, Dylan, you know. <laughs> well, I was, I was thinking about it quite a bit, and yeah, the form factor for the iPhone the specs have changed dramatically. The what's under the hood has changed dramatically over the last ten years. It pretty much looks the same. And I'm thinking about all of us sitting around the table here with our laptops. And laptops have changed dramatically in terms of what you can do on them. They haven't changed dramatically in terms of what they look like. Yeah. And they've been around even longer. And so, yeah, I I could see something that looks a lot like the iPhone continuing to be around. Uh, for another 15 years. That, so that I, I just I view the phone as a window 
that that just opens you up to the entire world. And and I, there has not been anything developed since the smartphone that comes even remotely close. I mean, I, nothing at all. I, I think the fantastical idea that hops into a lot of people's heads is like we'll have some form of embedded technology. That will be kind of the next thing. Distinctly possible, but but still, I mean, you have to account for how you're going to consume whatever that window. You know, it's it's got to be a window that's opening up the rest of the world to you. So then, how are you going to be consuming that? So if it's something that's installed in your arm, or if it's you know a headset that you're wearing, I mean, certainly there are going to be you know iterations that come along. I I just think that sometimes we get so used to those phones, we we forget about how how profound that development has been and, and I, I just we watch these companies try to come up with that next next lightning in a bottle device and, and, and nothing even close yeah that's why I keep thinking about the model T as the kind of comp for the for the iPhone is that you know we had smartphones before that period there was the blackberry and those sorts of things but they were used for business yeah and when it became the product that every single person used is when you saw these developments like we talked about of online dating or social media and all those sorts of things. And you really reshape your entire society around that. And you think about what the automobile did to the 20th century, right? I mean, I think, I mean, we all get in a car almost every day to go to work. And, uh, you know, there's the way, you know, everything gets to market uh, uses that system. So I think it's an interesting uh, comparison to think about. And, you know, to your point, the form factor of those original cars back 100 plus years ago, they aren't all, all that different. They're just significantly safer, but there's still four seats, a driver's wheel, and two pedals. Um, so something to think about uh, going forward. Another one of those over-unders I wanted to talk about is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has been a huge story um, of the past decade. It was initially released in January 2009 by Satoshi Nakamoto, who is still, to this day, unidentified. Uh, fun trivia question before I hit you with the over-under. The first Bitcoin transaction was in 2010 when Laszlo Hanyes, I hope I'm saying his last name right, bought two Papa John's pizzas in 2010. How much in U.S. dollars today did those Papa John's pizzas cost? I know it's like 1.3 million or something like that. It's something I was going to say a million. I was going to say like 55,000. Yeah, so he he bought two Papa John's pizzas with 10,000 Bitcoin that oh, today gosh. would be worth 70 million nine hundred and ten thousand dollars. Thousand Bitcoin. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's been a crazy. <laughs> yeah, so it's been a crazy year for Bitcoin since that uh, transaction in 2010. Obviously, rocketed up in 2017, hitting an all-time high of $19,783. Uh, fell 81% uh, from there uh, in 2019. Today, it's trading at $7,091. So, 10 years from now, do you think the price of Bitcoin in U.S. dollars will be higher or lower than $7,091? Or higher. Higher. I'm going to say higher, but as someone who does not own Bitcoin and probably will not own Bitcoin, um, I think that the use case is very compelling if you live in a country that does not have a particularly stable currency. And I lose sight of that a lot being in the United States. But I think there's something there. And I think there are a lot of people very similar to the folks who love gold that are going to continue to buy and hodl uh, Bitcoin. And so hodl. <laughs> I had to sneak it in there. Um, and so, I mean, I can't speak to its investment worthiness, but I do think it'll probably be worth more. Shannon? I think higher. Um, I will say I'm a little bit more skeptical when I look at it long term, particularly in developing countries, because you have to have the infrastructure to support it. Um, but I think in terms of US dollars, I think it'll be a bit higher. I'm not going to say a lot higher. I don't think we'll get back to where we were. We're all hodling. We're wait, all wait. JMO was a no. Except I said lower. So, yeah. so, what's your rationale? Um, 
I, I appreciate what you're saying in regard to con- to countries with with currencies that are less stable than others. I, I think for me, I I, I kind of want to ask the question: Why is the currency unstable? And I mean that boils down to government. So I mean I think there's a there's a whole another layer of problems to solve before Bitcoin just fixes it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean I, I like the fact that Bitcoin is finite. Right? There are only so many bitcoins and by that logic i mean over time if it's any kind of a store of value it should increase and i think over time it probably will be as more and more use cases uh come to light um i just think it's probably going to take a little bit longer than people think yeah so one question folks have raised and it kind of made me think about you know the use case for bitcoin a little bit is you mentioned one of the big positive traits of bitcoin that folks mentioned as jmo called out is that the supply is limited uh so it reduces the amount of inflation over time but the fact that supply is limited I think, from a currency point of view, is almost a negative because it makes the currency, by definition, deflationary. By definition, uh, things uh, things that are bought and sold in that currency will decrease in value over time in terms of that currency. And uh, when you know the Fed and every central bank's mission worldwide is to maintain steady, uh, predictable inflation over time, uh, when you have a currency that is going to be you know a global basis that is by its very nature deflationary. Seems to that it would create problems to be used as a currency, but uh, we shall see. Uh, it's uh, you know ten ten years in, we'll see where we're at uh, ten years from now. Uh, another major trend over the last decade has been the move towards marijuana legalization. We saw Colorado becoming the first state uh, to legalize marijuana uh, for recreational use in 2012. We've seen a bunch of other states follow. I, the big question I think a lot of folks have is how big can this industry get now that it's legalized? And I wanted to kind of pick. A number that maybe maybe might make sense. So currently, uh, in uh, in 2019, global alcohol revenue is projected to be about 1.5 trillion dollars. That's beer, wine, spirits, all those sorts of things. By 2030, do you think that global marijuana revenue from all sources will equal about 20 percent of, of what alcohol sold last year? So that's 300 billion dollars. So by 2030, do you think global marijuana sales will be 300 billion dollars or higher? I think it will be. On the run rate to that, if it isn't over it, yeah, because it might take a little while as we go through legalization for some of the major economies. But I think once that hits, it's going to become a major consumer product. Um, I think that actually a lot of alcohol sales may start going the way of uh, marijuana sales, and um, yeah, I, I probably take the over or the meat on that. I will easily take the over on that. I will also add the caveat that it depends a lot on regulations. I agree with Dylan's analysis that a lot of alcohol now, I think, will transition to cannabis use if and when it becomes federally legal, at least here in the U.S., just because of the side effects to it. That being said, there's a lot of regulations in place that makes access, even in states that have laws like Colorado that allow recreational cannabis use, that says, hey, you can't consume it like you can consume alcohol, right? You can't go to a bar and get cannabis and consume it there. So I think if we see changes on that level start to take place in the U.S., that could really open up the cannabis market. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I, th- I think that it's not going to be all that far down the road where you're going to see people drinking their weed like we drink our beer <laughs> today, right? I mean, I think you're going to see enough case studies out there that'll show. I mean, the the, the side effects of marijuana can can oftentimes be far less uh, dangerous than, than alcohol, and and I think that as time goes on, I mean, this this to me is. It is a generation. This is the power of generational thinking. I mean, we have a generation that is coming up now that is seeing the world through a completely different set of eyes. And and uh, you know, once that happens, then the numbers are in your favor and stuff changes pretty quickly. 
I agree. Um, yeah, I definitely would say uh, over on that. I think, especially as companies start to innovate with like onset and offset in terms of the th- therapeutic benefit or even just the recreational benefit you're trying to get high off of. But anyway, like I think as companies innovate with that, I think it is going to open up a very large market. And I agree with Dylan. I think you are going to see people start to move away from alcohol and move into cannabis-based beverages. So I, I could easily, easily see that being over 300. Yeah, I think you know I set the line, so obviously I think I think uh, I think it's about uh, it's about right on the money. Uh, one question I do have, and maybe, maybe you guys have some thoughts on this, as comparing marijuana to alcohol sales, is that out of home sales uh, for alcohol. So when you go to the bar, you know maybe I could drink five or six beers in, in an afternoon, uh, or you know in a in a course of a, an outing. Um, I don't think I could consume six joints. Uh, in one outing, um, that's about half of, of global revenue from alcohol. So, how, how do you all think about the role that out of you know away from home sales will play in the marijuana space going forward? Given that the consumption patterns of that drug are a little bit different. Here's what you can't do: you can't go to a bar and get a pint glass of vodka. So, you shouldn't be able to go to a cannabis bar theoretically and get the cannabis equivalent of a pint glass of alcohol, um, of vodka. So, I think it comes down to needing regulations to say what is a dose of THC, right? And just like alcohol, that can kind of change person to person. One person might have one beer and feel intoxicated. Uh, Another person might take five beers, feel intoxicated. It can be true for cannabis too, but it needs to be regulated. You shouldn't have products that are so high in THC that you are completely, you know, inebriated after what it would equivalent to one pint of beer, right? So I think it comes down to needing regulations. And I think that once they get there, it will take a long time because it's government. But once they get there, yeah, there's an opportunity for you to go out and, yeah, have the equivalent of five pints of cannabis. Wow, this analogy is really going down the toilet. <laughs> I want to follow Nick around on that. Right? <laughs> when that happens. Oh, boy, yeah. But I think, yeah. I think you're getting uh, to a point where you're seeing companies try to become really smart about that. They want you consuming these beverages just as much as you do the alcohol beverages. And so once that limit is set of what is the appropriate amount of THC, they're going to innovate and find ways to try to spread that out. Make sure you actually don't feel that benefit or that goes away in a very short amount of time so that you'll pick up the next one and keep going. So, I mean, I think I think this is an ever-evolving space, but it's I think that's what makes it really interesting, too. Yeah, you can tell your st- tell the story of, uh, you know, if I'm a restaurant and I'm selling these, you know, marijuana-infused beverages and we've been able to really develop these things, then, uh, you know, I'm going to get the strain that has a little bit turned up the munchies for my, uh, <laughs> for my restaurant there. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll sell a little bit more product. Probably fewer bar fights with this product. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Might still need to carry people out. <laughs> I just be a lot more happier when they do, I guess. Um, all right. Uh, the next topic I want to I want to talk about is antitrust. So antitrust obviously has been a big concern, uh, big tech really growing in a significant way over the last decade. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've got the election coming up in 2020. Uh, part of several uh, candidates' platforms have been, you know, breaking up big tech. And so the under, over-under I have for you is over-under one company over the next 10 years, over $1 billion in market cap that will be broken up as a result of antitrust. I'm going to take the over on that. Uh, I think that to go back to our rundown of the largest companies in the S&P 500, we are in an era where tech has dominated and grown very quickly. And so the five largest companies in the S&P 500, all tech companies. Um, I think that regulation and antitrust regulation in particular tends to lag market dynamics. You have regulators that want to kind of learn and understand what's going on in a market before they hop in. 
Um, and like we saw with a lot of the oil breakups that happened in the 1900s, um, I think that that's probably going to happen in tech. Um, I think with a lot of these businesses as well, it's pretty easy to see how you could spin out certain operations and still have them make sense as individual companies. I mean, Amazon spinning out AWS, it's already a business segment that exists for them. Um, you know, forcing somebody like um, Facebook to spin out Instagram. You know that that's not insane as an idea, and you know Alphabet owning Google Search, you could make the argument that maybe YouTube could be spun out of that. Um, in a lot of those cases, I think they wouldn't be terrible for shareholders. Um, it would definitely affect how those businesses operate. But after we've had this crazy period where tech companies have really taken over, I think it's only natural that we're going to have the backlash of making sure that we're comfortable with how they're operating in our society. I will also take the over on that, but I I do so hesitantly because I think it's a new problem that the government faces. That's because these monopolies, if you want to call them that, these companies that have the opportunity or you know risk of being broken up, they're consumer-based monopolies. So historically, we only see monopolies that are supply-based be spun off because it's anti-competitive. It hurts the consumer. But the thing about social media and data and tech is that these are monopolies that are direct results of users using platforms. They're natural monopolies. They're monopolies that have evolved from convenience for the consumer. So, I think it makes a difficult challenge for the government to figure exactly how do you start spinning off and what criteria do you use to start spinning off or forcing to break up companies that are monopolies simply based off their products are are so popular and so in demand. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd probably go over, and I think part of that might just be from companies almost doing this of their own volition. I mean, to me, Amazon is one that stands out, right? I actually could see Jeff Bezos just spinning out AWS without even being really told to do so by the government. Um, and I mean, to, to the point that you made, I mean, just because you're being broken up or spinning off a part of the business, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing for shareholders. I mean, oftentimes it can be very good. Um, so I mean it 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 depends on the reason. I mean I look at something like Facebook for example and I mean this may be a harsh opinion but I really do actually think Facebook is the most dangerous company in the world right now. Um <laughs> and, and just I, I just think her. that you know the government probably has something like Facebook square in its sights. Maybe it doesn't quite look at Amazon or Alphabet the same way, probably in the same ballpark. Uh, I, I do feel like some of these management teams are thinking about that and wondering, hey, would it be worth our time to go ahead and do this on our own? And, and doing doing it on our own terms uh, could, could make it work out really pretty well. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it, too. I mean, I agree with everybody across the table. I think if you look across history, there's always been periods where you get these big conglomerates, and then whether it's through regulations or it's through their own volition, they end up getting broken up. And so, I mean, I think it's only, I think it's more a matter of time and when it happens rather than if. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you guys. I think the company that I think could bear getting broken up the best, and I think you'll all hit on it, is Amazon, just because AWS, I mean, AWS by itself could be one of those top five most valuable companies in the world when you have dominant share in, you know, we mentioned cloud gaming earlier. Cloud will shape the way computing is done over the next 20, 30 years. And when you've got, you know, pushing 50% market share, growing at double digit percentages every year, I just can't imagine that business not doing super well. Um, yeah, I, I would. But between those two, I'd be much more excited to own the cloud part of the business than than the uh, than the marketplace. But we'll just have to see how things play out. Um, and also along the sides of big tech, obviously, have been super dominant over the last decade. Uh, you've created the whole Fang catch, catchphrase. So Facebook, Amazon, 
Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft is often thrown in there, and I'm going to throw that in there now. So if you look at those companies since 2013, when Facebook you know had its first full year publicly traded, they've returned 30, a th- at a 37% CAGR. Um, so today they're at roughly 4.9 trillion dollars. So over or under by 2030, do you think that the fangs with Microsoft included will triple to 15 trillion dollars uh, over the next decade? And that's uh, just just for quoting, that's a 11.75 percent CAGR over the next 10 years. Boy, you really set uh, some good odds here, Nick. Uh, <laughs> so so it's interesting because having done the S&P 500 breakdown in 2010 and and then again now um, the collective value of those companies back in 2010 was about 2.2 trillion dollars and the collective value of those companies now that top 10 is about six and a half trillion dollars and so that's a 3x for the basket now the growth rates for those businesses were a lot higher than the growth rates for that basket, and so um, there, there's a part of me that says, you know, these are inherently very scalable businesses, and it would be easy for them to maintain pretty aggressive growth rates. But we haven't seen trillion-dollar companies for that long, and I do start to wonder, you know, between them being bigger than anything we've seen before, and them possibly being broken up and not enjoying all of these synergies and cost efficiencies that we've seen them enjoy over the last. 10 years and the free ride that comes with not really being regulated, might that path be a little bit tougher? And so I'm going to say winners are probably going to keep on winning, but not to the extent where they hit those growth rates. Yeah, um, everything Dylan just said times <laughs> two. I, I will take the hesitant under on that. I think they're going to continue to grow, especially Microsoft. Um, and then when I Microsoft's not in there, is it? Fang. Well, he, well, he, he added it. Oh, okay, okay. Yes. Yes. I'm thinking sure. Yeah, especially Microsoft. Microsoft, I can see that being a really like 11.5% CAGR for Microsoft at this point feels pretty achievable to me. But when I look at Facebook, even Amazon, I mean, these are really aggressive growth rates over the next decade. So I'm going to take the hesitant under, but I think they'll be bigger. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go under because I think honestly, it's not. It's not about the companies. I mean, as they get bigger, they slow down. But I think it's gonna be more macro related. I mean, I think there's going mm. to be a big old culling of a lot of value in this market over the course of the next decade, at some point or another. I mean, whether that's a recession or whatever, um, I think a lot of these companies have benefited from tremendous multiple expansion that is not necessarily on par. Well, with them. Probably close to on par with their earnings growth, but I think that we're just going to see um, a little bit of a culling at some point, which would prevent them from achieving that that level of growth. But I mean, again, you know, it's, it's they're still going to be bigger. Just for the sake of being the contrarian, I'm going to say over. Love it. <laughs> And only for the sake of being a contrarian am I going to say over, because I agree with everything everybody has said at this table. But this is my bold prediction. I'm going over. Yeah, I think I think I might have to go over too. Just as I mentioned, you know, cloud, how big of a how big of a tailwind I think it is, and how big of an opportunity it is. You look at a company like Pinterest came public earlier this year, and if you look at their expense bill, the portion of their revenue that is going to AWS off the top is double digit percentages of their revenue. This isn't their earnings or revenue. So, uh, and when you think about basically the what I think of cloud computing is it's kind of the rails that everybody's kind of riding on to use this compute power to build their businesses over time. And if you think of the history of the railroads, right, every time you built a new stop, there was this boom town that blew up that kind of utilizes the infrastructure to grow over time. And I feel like cloud computing is doing the same thing. And if I have have these businesses that I I think 
we'll naturally have three or four major players on a global scale. There's just so much fixed cost investment that you have to put in uh, to, to, to build up the, this cloud infrastructure. I do think there's going to be a few big winners there. And I think it's going to be the Amazons, the Microsofts, um, the Googles. And uh, just when you look at how big this opportunity could be over time, and if you can skim off, say, even if it's not 10%, say you can skim off 2% of revenue off an opportunity as big and as massive as this can be, global computing, uh, global software businesses, I just think the opportunity is so big, I think 12% a year. Even if the rest of them kind of drag down a little bit, I think the opportunities for those three big ones could carry them over there. I think you could do far worse than buying the five of them as a basket <laughs> and deciding, or the six of them, however many names it was, and just holding them for the next ten yeah. years. You know, I think that these are businesses that are in dominant positions um, and have realized quite a bit of value already, but will probably continue to do so. Yep. Okay. The last one, and this kind of hits on what Jamo mentioned about the macro environment. It's interest rates. So for the period of the 2010s, the major narrative was interest rates have to go up. They were basically zero uh, to start off. The decade, and they began ticking up. Uh, I believe it was around uh, 2015. We started ticking up interest rates steadily over time. That peaked uh, at the end of last year uh, when the target rate got up to around two and a half percent, and has been tracking down ever since. Uh, so the question I have, given the you know the way interest rates have gone and they've remained low for such a long period of time, is interest rates today? Uh, you have a Fed target rate of 1.5 percent to 1.75 percent for the federal funds rate. Ten years from now, are interest rates higher or lower than they are today? Well, I feel like I've been saying they've got to <laughs> go higher for the past ten years, so I'm sticking with it. They just at some point they've got to go higher, Nick. They just got to. The, I think the struggle with this is they've been so low for so long, and there are still a lot of people in the United States, and there's still a lot of countries across the world that are really struggling, mm. and. You think about the tools that a um, central bank has at their disposal, and one of them is to lower interest rates. And you know, you hear a lot of kerfuffle about you know when is the stock market correction going to come? Um, and you know, the U.S. market has done quite well. There are other ones that have have struggled. And I do wonder if um, we'll hit the point where they need to pull that lever to stimulate growth. Uh, even though we're already so low, and you know, we were, we were talking about the the difficulty of nailing something down, uh, you know, from a macroeconomic perspective. I can't venture a guess on this one. I wouldn't be surprised if they were lower at some point than they currently are, and if at some point in the next ten years they are higher, uh, dramatically higher than they are right now. Yeah, I think my answer to this is, is I don't know. I, the the follow up question I would have is, you know, even if you did know, how would you change your investment strategy, if at all? There's really not much you can do. No, I don't no, think there's really much no. you would do. I mean, you might look at your longer term plan and trying to figure out if you're, you know, looking to buy a house or <laughs> want to refinance right. or what. I mean, you know, there there are certain things where those interest rates aren't really going to dictate what you're doing day to day. I mean, we like to talk about them all the time because they have bigger picture implications. But yeah, your point, uh, your point's a good one. Yeah, and and the investing takeaway, I think, if anything, is you know it's it's been a very good time to be in stocks oh, yeah. over the, over the last decade, and um, you know if if people continue to get pretty meager interest rates elsewhere, the money is going to stay in stocks. Well, I mean that is the point. I mean that really we talk about that all the time, right? Is with interest rates so low, it's all of this money is chasing where the biggest yield is going to be. That biggest yield is not interest rate driven instruments or interest rates driven instruments. It's you know, in in the stock market, and there will be a point in time where that turns. You know, I mean, I feel comfortable saying that. When, who knows? Um, and, and that'll certainly um, 
maybe dictate as a buyer of stocks, you want to be a little bit more cautious about what you're buying. Um, valuation at some point is going to matter more than it does today. <laughs> but it shouldn't stop you from buying. No. Because we, we know it's only a matter of time before rates do go up. And so, I mean, I. I I think it's good to know about it, but I think again, as we're long-term investors, it really should not change how you evaluate companies, um, and really just continuing to invest in stocks for the long term. Yeah, I think one of the best things that you can say to someone who is worried about a correction or worried about some macroeconomic issue is to think precisely like how your 401k invests or your 403b invests or whatever your retirement account might be through work if you have one, where it doesn't matter what's going on if you're being paid twice a month. 24 times a year, you're buying into the funds that you've decided to buy for the 401k. It's going to happen regardless. It's going to happen whether we're at highs or lows. And um, you can't do that 24 times if you're buying individual stocks. It's a little tougher you know, to buy into an individual position that many times in one year. But keep that mindset. Just you know, remember that no individual headline is going to move uh, anything permanently. And it's important to just you know, keep your cost basis moving and add to your winners over time. All right, that's all I've got for the over/unders. Do we want to do our top stock picks for 2020? Yeah, we'll throw some stocks out there. Before we throw our stocks out there, though, I think we should take another listener recent stock pitch. From all Jason. right, we got one more here from Adam Diamond. Adam says, "Hi all, longtime listener, subscriber, first time emailer. First, I want to say how amazing your podcasts are. I faithfully listen to each of them. Thank you, Adam." Um, I have two stocks that I recently bought on their dips. The first is TD Ameritrade after they announced free trades. Well, and that must have been right before that Schwab acquisition <laughs> announcement, too. Easy return. Great news to hear the Charles Schwab acquisition. The second is Wells Fargo just after they announced their new CEO. So far, so good. Keep up the good work. Adam, thanks so much. Appreciate that. I can't speak to Wells Fargo at all because I don't understand how to look at bank stocks. Well, I mean, Matt and I we talk about this stuff all the time, and I mean, it's it's you know one of the one of the bold predictions that Matt put out there for 2020, and I agree with. We'll continue to see some consolidation in the space as rates stay low. I mean, banks are in a bit of a challenged environment, um, trying to realize profitability. Net interest margins are just. They just, there's just a ceiling on them right now, unfortunately, and so it puts banks like Wells Fargo in a good position if you know they could just get their house in order. I mean, Wells yeah, Fargo really. has been a cultural nightmare. Thankfully, the CEO they recently just brought in was external, and I think we can all agree that was something that was really, really needed, um, given their presence in the mortgage market and their size. It's hard to imagine Wells Fargo not recovering. Um, and so perhaps he, he found a good value where there is not much value today. Those corporate culture changes are very tough for a company that size, and it seems like they've been working on it for a long time. Yeah. Um, my my general mo with something like that is that I don't like to pay admission to watch someone else figure something out. Yeah. Um, but I also don't understand banks particularly well, and you know that's that's a business that's really driven by um, what the books look like, and so you know. Power to Adam for hopping in there. Absolutely, yeah. I felt a little bit about Wells Fargo, similar to I felt about Boeing. Of you've got these really old, well-established businesses that it's really hard to see a case for them, you know, from the core business really getting dislodged. Um, and so, just from a pure market opportunity perspective, there's a really strong case there. But you have for Boeing the 737 Max, for Wells Fargo, all, all these account scandals that really raise questions of management's ability to play that hand they've been dealt that's so strong for them 
that makes them you know really hard to you know get excited about going out and buying them despite you know how big the market opportunity may be i think the biggest mistake wells fargo made was replacing their former ceo with an insider when i think it was tim sloan yes. took over the position there um, that, that was their biggest mistake was promoting an, an insider they should have just immediately brought someone in from the outside cultural problems i mean they they suck but they're fixable right um, i mean there's not something fundamentally wrong with the business model it's just they they weren't being led very well and those are fixable problems they just delayed uh, their opportunity to really get that damage repaired. And I think when it comes to bank stocks in particular, um, it takes a lot longer to regain that trust oh, yeah. when it comes to yeah. consumers. And I think a lot of others, when it comes to someone's kids and their money, it takes a whole lot of time to rebuild that trust if you can get it. So I don't think, um, I think it's just going to be a much longer story for Wells Fargo to play out and to rebuild and regain that, that stellar reputation that they had before the scandal broke out. And for me, that's kind of like the big question mark on that stuff. And I don't mean to rake his stock pick <laughs> over the coals. You know, I think it's it's also it's just great to get feedback on oh, yeah, you know, stocks that you're interested in. And so we're going to pitch some companies that we like for 2020. And of course, you know, we we want constructive criticism. <laughs> and and <laughs> if you have any red flags on any of these companies, you know, we would love to hear them, listeners. So you know, please uh, keep that in mind. You don't have to just send us your pitches. You can also send us some thoughts on these pitches uh, that we're going to send your way. So. Um, Jason, I'm going to let you go first because I'm a little worried that I picked the same company as you. <laughs> really? And so, if I let you go first, we can go around, and then I can come up with my plan B. If you already, <laughs> no, if you man. pitch the same stock, I have a feeling I might <laughs> surprise you here, and I'm I'm going to go with. I was asked to participate in Investor Place's best stock of 2020 contest, so I'm going to go with the stock that I chose for for this contest. And by the way, I'm in the Investor Place. Best stock of 2019. How you doing? Uh, well, so far second place. You know what the stock is? What's that? Teladoc. Teladoc. Hey. Hey. <laughs> so this one, I actually had to noodle over for an entire weekend because I was going to go <laughs> one of two ways. I ended up going with Wayfair, though, and part of that is probably recency bias and showing up to to my doorstep after work every day for the past month and seeing five Wayfair boxes on the front <laughs> porch. But honestly, I mean, Wayfair to me is a business that I've been following ever since they went public, and I've been tracking metrics years before they even went public, and it, it, it's just amazing the numbers that they continue to record. And in this most recent quarter, revenue of $2.3 billion, up 36% from a year, a year ago. Gross margin of 23.4%, up 40 basis points from a year ago. Active customers now in $19.1 up 37% from a year ago. Orders delivered of $9.1 million, up 32% from a year ago. Percentage of orders from repeat customers. And this is the most important metric of all, because it's expensive to acquire customers. So, when they get them, they want to keep them. The percentage of orders from repeat customers is 67.3% now, up from 66.3% a year ago. And if you look at these metrics, going all the way back to 2013, they are just on the way up. And it's a difficult business of value because they're still not making any money, right? They're building out this network. It's basically a global furniture fulfillment network, and they're investing a lot of money in the business. But we've seen this play out before with other businesses. Um, the market is affording them a little bit of time to do it. I think one of the biggest question marks for them has been that China trade. Uh, I'm going to use your word, kerfuffle, because <laughs> it's so good. Um, I, I do think we will see that will be 
concluded at some point or another. And I think that is something that will be a, a catalyst that helps uh, get this business going back in a little bit of a, a better direction. That, that, that earnings call really uh, shaved a lot off that stock price in, in the matter of a day. Um, I like that leadership is so bought into the business. They own they own an awful lot of it, and I've used it an awful lot. And all of the numbers just continue continue to tell us that the investments that they're making are are paying off. It's just going to be a matter of time. Now, Shannon, you are leaving the show for 2020, <laughs> but we're not going to let you off the hook. You still have to pitch a stock, and we might ask you to come back for oh, the yes. uh, the roundtable as a little recap next year. Uh, what's something that you really like for the upcoming year? Yeah. So uh, since. I am on my way out. I'll give one and a half. Uh, my half, though, is actually coming from the stock that I mentioned last year. Um, I'm going to re-wreck it here. It's Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Um, stock is up about 32% this year. Um, I encourage you to go back and listen to the roundtable. I won't get into it for the sake of time. But if you're looking for an opportunity to play in the gene editing space, they are a partner with uh, gene editing giant CRISPR Therapeutics. They just released some really, really promising data. It was a very small patient population. Um, but I like where this, this company is going. Um, they've got a stellar management team. They have a drug development platform. So this is not a one-and-done type of biopharma company. They have literally a platform where they're going after really um, high unmet need targets. They're known for cystic fibrosis. Um, but this is a company I'm really watching even more so in 2020 and into the next decade. But the other company that I really like heading into 2020 is a company called Garden Health. Um, for those who aren't familiar, it's a leading provider of liquid biopsies, which is basically a blood draw instead of a very invasive biopsy that you typically will see for cancer patients. It's, of course, less invasive, less costly. And this is not of the Theranos kind, <laughs> what you all are thinking. Um, this is the disclaimer. real deal. Um, but basically, this is a company that has shown that it has what it takes to analyze on a genetic level the tumor that the tumor DNA that's circulating in the blood. Year to date, stock is up 93%. Revenue is exploding. Um, most recent quarter revenue was up to 61 million, nearly triple from the year prior. Their tests that they're completing have just about doubled. Um, Gross margins up about 1,400 basis points to 70%. Still uh, losing money, uh, but much less than expected. And this is all on top of their Garden 360 test, which isn't even yet FDA approved, but is very much expected across multiple cancer types. So this is a huge opportunity when you're just looking at the cancer space in general. I mean, you're talking about cancer being the second leading cause of death globally. Um, and by 2030, researchers are expecting 21 million new cases every single year. This is a company that's carved out its niche in cancer diagnostics. This is the space you want to invest in. Um, right now, they're focused really on advanced AIDS cancer, but the bigger opportunity, opportunity, and really the $18 billion opportunity, is doing it before someone has the symptoms, before you get diagnosed. These are the tests that are coming later that um, are also highly expected to get approved. And so, this is a company, if you're looking to play in the, the gene space, um, a company that's really carved out its niche, Garden Health is the one to go to. I think that pitch right there fully wraps up why you will be so missed on industry focus. Um, <laughs> I won't be far. I will not be far. <laughs> so, so excellent and also so accessible as someone who doesn't really follow the healthcare space as much. Um, Nick, what is on your watch list for 2020? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people will be familiar with this company, Microsoft. Huge performer this year, up 46% on the year. I mentioned cloud earlier, how big of an opportunity I think that is. Uh, Azure, their cloud offering, number two behind AWS. 
Uh, Microsoft is that rare big tech that doesn't seem to be on the antitrust radar at all. So you don't. Um, they just they, kind they of were already on the antitrust <laughs> radar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were on round one 20 years ago, right? Um, so I mean, just up and down. I mean, obviously Windows, Office, Office 365, essentially the biggest SaaS product in the world. Uh, 126 billion dollars in revenue, up 14 percent most recent quarter. Cloud and commercial revenues growing 36 percent. Uh, you know, when, when a market opportunity is as huge as cloud is, and you're growing it at that kind of rate, I, I just, I don't see an end in sight for them. Yeah, they have the gaming exposure. We'll see the new round uh, of console upgrades the next year. And you mentioned how important cloud will be for gaming going forward. The infrastructure they have through Azure really gives them an opportunity uh, to do well going forward. So, uh, really, all, all, all steams ahead, I guess. Yeah, I think that Microsoft may be one of the best, like, I'm going to start investing stocks that you can mm-hmm. possibly buy. You know, they, they've built up such a must-have suite of software, and they've built all these other really sticky businesses into their offerings. Um, you know, if, if you're just putting a portfolio together in 2020, I, I think that's got to be at the top of your list. Yeah, I just think of, like, think of the big tech CEOs. If you accept uh, Jeff Bezos... Is there any other person you would run running your tech company today other than Satya Nadella? No, I mean, the story with him has been incredible. Absolutely incredible. All right, Emily, first time on the Stocks to Watch for Industry Focus. I feel like I always have to go after these really amazing, like, revolutionary companies. <laughs> did, but... you, did you want to go after me yeah. first? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll lob you a softball here so you can, you know, take it and run with it. But I talked yesterday about pet humanization, and the stock that's on my radar is Chewy, which is the largest e-commerce pet, t- pet retailer in the U.S. I've talked a lot about it, and I think it's one of those companies, almost in line with Wayfair, Jason, that mm-hmm. is really under appreciated in the market. It went public this year. It's unprofitable, and it got caught up in that entire sweep of unprofitable IPOs of of these companies with ridiculous valuations, but that's simply not Chewy. Chewy is operating in a $70 billion pet market, and they on track to do, I believe, it's $5 billion worth of revenue this year alone. Only 14% of all purchases for pet care products happens online. That implies that Chewy has virtually all of the online market for pet spend. And if you assume that people are going to be moving their purchases online for pet spend, and I think that trend is going to continue to happen, then there's no reason why Chewy shouldn't be much bigger, not only in 2020, but over the next decade. I would challenge anybody to who has access to a phone or computer right now, which really should be everyone, Google like pet stuff or dog food. Google something like that. I dare you to find an Amazon link. They're all Chewy. Chewy has done an amazing job establishing its online SEO presence. And it's unprofitable, but it's unprofitable by choice in the similar way that Wayfair is. Um, If you look at their cohorts of consumers, they track it really well. If you go into their S1, it's an amazing S1 to read. They literally track how much money they spend to acquire their customers and the lifetime value of that customer. They're essentially saying, yeah, the reason we're unprofitable is because we're spending so much on advertising. But the reason why we're spending so much on advertising is because the value of the customer that we're acquiring is so great over the chance of their life that if we were to scale back our advertising spend to become profitable, we'd be giving up a significant amount of future revenue. Over the past year, Chewy has seen a 120% increase in sales from existing customers, with 66% of all of those sales happening through their auto-ship program. So that's people automatically getting boxes shipped to them every month, every two months, every three months. I mean, it's an amazing 
platform that has done an amazing job of catering to an underserved market. I I really think it's underrated, uh, but I know it's a controversial stock because of the you know previous Pets.com bust back in the early 2000s. So it was it was hard for them to escape that when they were oh, yeah. going public. And you know when we look at retailers or e-tailers, um, you know we we think of are they Amazon proof? Mm-hmm. And with TJ Maxx and those types of stores, they have the bargain hunting. With Home Depot, they have, you know, this is specialty equipment. It might not ship particularly well. You might need it immediately. And that that gives it that Amazon proofness. Is the SEO strength of Chewy what makes it Amazon proof to you? No, I think it's their, I mean, that obviously helps, but I think it's their customer retention practices, which include stuff like sending sending handwritten notes for pet owners on their pet's birthdays if a pet passes away. They'll send flowers. They've even been known to have you know customer service people paint portraits of your animals and send them to you. It, they really improve the overall customer experience. People who purchase on Chewy's platform once can usually continue to do so. Uh, I'm a loyal Chewy member, and it, they do, for the most part, match Amazon's prices. I think you can probably find products that are cheaper on Amazon the same way you can probably find products that are cheaper on Chewy's. The big risk with them is the fact that they are, and I should have mentioned this at the offset, I paid it off to be so great. They are a controlled company. So PetSmart purchased them. They are controlled by PetSmart. And PetSmart is not necessarily out there looking for the best shareholder returns for the average retail investor. They're probably going to leverage Chewy to do what they can to retain their strength. But granted, while it's annoying, I also think that there's a certain level of strength that comes with the distribution networks that have been set up through PetSmart through that acquisition. So that's the biggest risk for them. You didn't throw me a softball. That was a great pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, pet humanization, Chewy, is not exactly Microsoft. (laughs) I was relieved that Jason uh, did not take my stock. Um, But I do have another one that I'll throw out there, too. Um, My pitch here is DocuSign. And Uh and I think anyone that listens to me or to Jason uh, probably knows this one. They are, you know, e-document everything. Uh, They are trying to make document management as easy as possible for all of the forms that you need to fill out. And the reality is there are a lot of forms that you need to fill out, particularly in the healthcare and financial space. This is a company that makes that super easy, and they are embedded with some of the big names already. It's been an incredible performer so far in 2019, I think up 80% year-to-date. Now, I don't expect that to continue. Um, This is a stock that I own and have bought a couple times. But Growing revenue at 40%, they were actually able to accelerate their revenue growth. Uh, they have dollar net retention rate, which is that number we love to see for SaaS providers at 113%. It's not lighting the world on fire, but I think that's a good sustainable number. Basically, means for customers that were there a year ago that they got a dollar from, they are now getting a dollar and 13 cents. You couple that with the fact that they have enterprise customer growth of 30%. They've got a lot of really good things going for them. And I think it's a, it's a company that capitalizes on some really great trends. Jason, you talk about them all the time. Anything I missed there? I, I mean, I, I, I love it. I own it myself. Every time I get to use it, I'm just astounded by just how easy it is. And I just wish I had had it all my life, given you buy and sell houses or go to the DMV or get married. I mean, there's always something you got to sign. Um, I, the only thing I'll add in there, I mean, I, I, I do. I think that they have formidable competition in the form of Adobe, mm-hmm. and in going through Adobe's most recent quarter with, do- uh, quarter with their document cloud segment of the business, uh, somewhat comparable to, to DocuSign's business at this point. 
I will say I made my bold prediction on Motley Fool Money last week. I wouldn't be surprised to see Adobe actually try to buy DocuSign. And I think the main reason is because DocuSign gets a hold of so many small and medium-sized businesses that Adobe would just love to have. And I think if you wanted to play that trend, you could buy both of them yep. and own two stellar businesses. Yeah, 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 Adobe's phenomenal. In addition to all of the document management stuff that Adobe's doing, they also own so many just you know, tentpole software franchises yep. that are must-haves in the creative space. So that's another one you can throw on your list. I think that that's been a killer performer over the last five years. The other one I was going to mention is Axon. Um, this is a company that people might know based on what they used to be called, uh, and that is Taser. Uh, this is a business that <laughs> made stun guns, and they still make stun guns that were used by law enforcement. The reason that I am interested in them and have owned them for the last four or five years is they make the body cameras that you will see on most cops, and they have a cloud business built around maintaining those video records, evidence.com. You put that together, the body cam and evidence.com business is almost half of revenue, growing over 40% year over year, and about two-thirds of that revenue is cloud-related with 70% margins. Um, They are the major player in that space, very little competition, and a lot of medium and long-term contracts with their customers. And for me, this is a business that's just very easy to get behind. Uh, You know, I, I think that having uh, a better insight into what's going on with traffic stops and how law enforcement is uh, you know, acting is generally better for everyone. It leads to more accountability, and it reduces the liability for a lot of local law enforcement um, groups. So, so I think it's an easy stock to root for, and one that has also done quite well over the last couple of years. I think they're up 60% year to date. So that's another one for your lists. Um, anything else on the stock front? Yeah, no. So on the Exxon thing, yeah, it sure helps when you know uh, folks are you know laws are passed that require people to buy your products, <laughs> right? You know, it really is, tends to be a great tailwind to have as a company, and Exxon is benefiting from that in a significant way. Oh, so, so nice of you to mention that, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I appreciate all the stock pitches, and I appreciate all you guys taking your time to hop into the studio to do this year and wrap up. I think we've got one more stock pitch from one of our listeners, Jason. Yeah, I mean, I think this is wrapping up with this one right here from. Joey Hayes on Twitter at DJ Joey Hayes. He says, "I just bought just bought more Disney because, well, Baby Yoda." <laughs> Dropping the mic. I love that, and you know what? It's been a great year for Disney. Uh, this was a stock that had kind of struggled for quite some time um, and been more or less flat. I mean, depending on your holding period over the last couple of years, you actually might have been down on Disney stock. And I think Disney Plus and the entrance into the streaming space has got a lot of people excited. I think they're doing over $10 billion in box office this year, which is just incredible. Uh, That's another one. I'd kind of put it in the same category as Microsoft, where you really can't go wrong buying that one and just leaving it alone for five or ten years. Here's a trend for you. Here's a trend for you. All right, ten years from now, are we still watching Marvel movies? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think think they'll be like Star Wars. Okay, I was going to say, Star Wars is going to be my next one. Ten years from now, are they still releasing another Star Wars trilogy? I'm not sure about the the movies, but I think they have so many different stories they can tell with that universe of characters. I mean, I think that's just that's one of their specialties is taking that universe of characters and making new stories with them. You, you know, that touches on another trend from the last ten years that I think will stay, but I wish would go away, and that is the shameless reboots yeah. and extensions that we're seeing in entertainment. Um, you know, I mean, I love Netflix for a lot of reasons, but it was it Fuller House, uh, <laughs> the extended seasons of Arrested Development. You know, I think you have all these big entertainment brands as they're spending more and more money on their content because all of these creators are being bid up. They're saying, well, we want something that's bankable. We want something that we know is going to draw an audience and has a cult following. And it's 
it's indulging the fans to some extent, but I think it's because they know it's a moneymaker. And uh, I, I hope at some point the fans push back on it a little bit. I tell you, man, it does I, feel shameless. I saw those reboots. Arrested Development is one of my favorite shows ever. Those first three seasons were just gold, amazing. I, I couldn't get through the first episode of that reboot, and I, I almost canceled Netflix because of it. I was so frustrated. <laughs> and then to see him do it again, it was just like, guys, come on. Yeah, but they knew people were going to watch. And, I guess. And, and you know what? I was one of those people because I also <laughs> love Arrested Development. So we'll see. I, I want to wrap with one more over under, and this is for our man behind the glass, Austin Morgan. So the past decade, we saw one Washington Nationals <laughs> championship over under – 1.5 championships in the next decade. We actually saw two this decade. Washington Nationals? Oh, sorry. I think it's Washington teams. Well, I think... We're talking about the Capitals. We, capitals. we got the Caps and yes. we got the uh, the Mystics. That's three. Yeah. That's well, three. That's right. The Mystics. Yeah. Uh, in the four major sports, you got two. Yes. <laughs> this is true. Okay. So talking specifically about baseball. Specifically about baseball. We, have, we have one championship in the past decade. I'm going to set the over-under at one and a half. How do you feel about that? I'm going to say under one and a half. Ooh. Do you think they'll get another one? Uh, yes, but I'm skeptical to say it'll be in the next decade. Wow. I think. I mean, Austin, <laughs> I think it's gonna Gosh. be. I mean, I would love to see it again, but the the teams that dominate year in year out are always gonna dominate because they make so much money. Nope. I just don't. And then the way the Nationals owners spend money, I don't think they're willing to pay what big guys because a lot of guys don't want the deferred money and that's all the nationals want to give you know don't think they'll i mean geniuses they've built a championship team it worked but it worked because they got hot at the right time which is not repeatable it sounds like you you got the right mindset coming into the championship offseason i mean oh yeah you know that's the best third baseman (laughs) in the game it's tough to he's not replaceable and We'll see. Oh yeah, that's that's the telltale sign of a fan who isn't used to winning and knows that it probably shouldn't happen that often. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's that's how I the felt when the Jets it, were good. Yeah, the Caps <laughs> are making it like common for DC sports teams to repeat greatness. Like they won the President's Trophy for two years in a row before they won the Stanley Cup. They were untouchable during the regular season. They just couldn't win the playoffs. Now again, they're at the top of the standings. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I would love to have another parade in Washington, D.C. I agree. Who wouldn't? I didn't go to it, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just like the idea of parades. I think it's good for, for morale in the city. We'll check back in on all this stuff. Uh, I don't know about 10 years. Hopefully, we're all still here. JMO, that will be 20 for you. But hopefully, we're all still here in yeah, 10 years. Well, yeah. I mean, that would be great. 20 for me, like, to total at the company. I, I don't yeah. age faster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not I feel saying, like I do. I'm not <laughs> saying that there are Dylan years and Jamie right. years. <laughs> <laughs> like like humans and dogs. <laughs> In any event, I think we'll wrap things up there. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this special holiday week roundtable with all of our hosts. We certainly enjoyed making it, in case you couldn't tell. Uh, that'll do it for this episode and for episodes for 2019. We'll be back in 2020 with some more stuff for you. And like I mentioned, that updated format and a couple changes with the voices that you'll be hearing each week. If you want to reach out to us with a stock pitch or with some feedback on anything that we talked about, hit us over at industryfocus at pool.com or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. And if you want more stuff, go over to iTunes or check out videos from the podcast on YouTube. 
As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan and all of the folks here joining me for their work on today's show. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Hey folks, I know I already outroed the show, but we got a little fun nugget for you for all the folks that stuck around and listened to the end of the credits. This is a song from Burke and Graffia. He's a fool, and it's uh, nicely tied into what we do over here at Industry Focus. Who knows, maybe in 2020 we'll start working it into our credits. Hope you enjoy. I've got a million dollars. It's hypothetical. Large amount in my bank account. It's parenthetical. The money I'm made of is theoretical, so in theory I've got it good. My fat wallet is on a diet. My balance sheet is lopsided. My income statement is keeping silent, but let's keep one thing understood. I need checks. I need balances. Life's a mess. With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money or do you do it for love? My cold hard cash is soft and tropical My deep pockets are merely topical I hit the big time, it was microscopical But don't you get it, I am no fool I own a bank, I call him Piggy Brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy Cracked him open, what a pity His inner life was pitiful I need checks, I need balances Life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I'm cashing in on triple coupons Soup kitchen's calling Saying the soup's on I sing for my supper and get my groove on I still know how to have fun checks I need balances life's a mess with financial challenges checks and balances when things get tough do you do it for money or do you do it for love Always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser Is the miser Always lives in misery I own a bank I call him Piggy Brought home the bacon He got a little wiggy Cracked him open What a pity His inner life was pitiful I need checks 
money balances Life's a mess With financial challenges Checks and balances When things get tough Do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? Do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? 